You are listening to the Sermon Podcast for Triumph Lutheran Brethren Church. Our vision is to see the life and message of Jesus transform hearts, homes, and cities. Wherever you are, our prayer is that God would meet you and that the life and message of Jesus would transform your life. To find more resources, go to triumphlbc.org. Well, today is officially the uh, first day of our summer schedule here at, at Triumph, and, and that means at least two things. One, like Shauna said, we're officially starting our Summer in the Psalms sermon series. Say that fast. Um, we're starting our summer sermon series, and we can all wear our white pants now. So, All right, today we'll be reading and uh, looking at Psalm 2 which uh, is called a royal psalm because uh, it has to do with someone taking the throne and ruling as king of Israel. It, it was probably written by King David, um, at least in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, says there that David wrote it. But uh, one thing we know for sure that whoever wrote it, that this psalm, Psalm 2, was read or sung when descendants of King David were crowned, like at their coronation. But um, ultimately, Psalm 2 points us to a king who's even greater than David. So Psalm 2 actually isn't just a royal psalm, it's a royal messianic psalm, a a, a psalm that's ultimately about the Messiah, a psalm about the one true king, the king of all kings, Jesus Christ. You see, uh, this is very interesting, but Psalm 2 is actually quoted in the New Testament uh, seven different times. And whenever the New Testament quotes Psalm 2, and each one of those seven times, it's talking about Jesus, literally every time. So that's how we know that Psalm 2 is ultimately about King Jesus. Um, but there's also one other thing that I think is really interesting here, that along with pointing us to the one true king, Jesus, um, this psalm also shows us how God is calling us to respond and how not to respond to the one true king. So, uh, and actually, as we get into the response part of this, I think, I think some of it might surprise you. So, uh, let's take a listen here. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 12. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. 
Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. All right, so let's try to uh, break this down a little bit here. First of all, um, the, the, the whole foundation of this psalm, the, the, the whole psalm basically rests on this, this idea. Psalm 2 tells us we have a king, okay? And, uh, whether we know it or not, we have a king. In verse 6, God says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And he's basically saying, you know, th- there are all these kings around But then there's my king. He's king over and above all the other kings. The the greatest kings, even even kings like David, are, are just dim reflections of the one true king. The Messiah, the Christ, the Lord's anointed, the the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So that, that's the first thing here. That that's the foundation. And everything else we're talking about today is resting on this. Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward, we have a king. And the next thing we see here, well, this is one of the surprising parts that I mentioned. Yes, we have a king, but we hate him. That's the second thing we see here. The, the, the Bible says that, that the, the natural heart of, of every human being hates the true king. I mean, we see this plain as day right here in our psalm, starting right away in verse 1. I mean, just listen to some of the, the hostile language here. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth and the rulers band together to what? To rise up against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So what does this mean? Well, actually, when you read this, the way that it's translated here, you probably get the idea that, that the kings of the earth are against the Lord and his anointed one, his anointed king, because Uh, the Lord and his anointed king have chained up the kings of the earth and and the rulers uh, shackled them like like captives. But that, it's not the best translation because scholars who know the Hebrew language a lot better than I do uh, tell us that the second word here should actually be translated as yoke. You know, like you put on uh, an oxen. So, so verse 2 should say then, the kings of the earth, the rulers band together to rise up against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their yoke. Okay? So, so that means then that, that the kings of the earth and the rulers aren't upset because they're be chained up and shackled like a hostage or a prisoner. No, I mean, it's not that idea at all. The idea is that the kings of the earth and the rulers are upset because they have a yoke on their shoulders. 
which is just a poetic way of saying that they're under someone else's control. Okay, so a, a yoke, again, is something you put on an oxen to control them. The, uh, the, this is why the kings of the earth and the rulers are upset, are worked up here, because they have a greater king who's ruling over them, a greater king who's in control of them. That's what they don't want to have anything to do with. They're like, look, your worshipfulness, let's get one thing straight. I take orders from just one person, me. I don't want to be yoked by anyone. That's the basic impulse of every king, every ruler. And to be honest, every human heart, really. The impulse is we need to break these chains. We need to throw off that yoke. I don't want anyone controlling me. Uh, or we could put it like my son Andrew used to do when he was really little. He would say, you're not the boss of me. That, that's, uh, that's what Andrew would tell his big brother and his big sister uh, pretty much all the time. You're not the boss of me. Basically, any time that, that they'd tell him to do something or ask him to do something, he'd tell them, you're not the boss of me. And honestly, there it is, right there, the, the default setting of every human heart. You're not the boss of me. We hate the idea of someone who's the boss of us. We hate the idea of a king who has his yoke on us, who, who says, you belong to me, you're under my control. You're not your own boss, I'm the boss of you. And our struggle against this, it goes all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis. I mean, what does God say to Adam and Eve? He tells them, you must not eat from the tree I have commanded you not to eat from. And what do Adam and Eve say? You're not the boss of me. We'll eat from any dang tree that we want to eat from. And that's been our natural human response to God ever since. Like when God says, uh, you shall not murder or commit adultery, even in your mind or your heart. What do we say to that? Or actually, better yet, what, what, what does King David say to that? King David, who I might add, we think probably wrote this psalm. What does David say to the Lord's command? You're not the boss of me. I'm going to indulge my lustful fantasy, and I'm going to force myself on Bathsheba, who's another man's wife. And then... I'll murder her husband to cover it up. Not the boss of me. Or, or what God says, honor your father and your mother. What do we say to that? You're not the boss of me, and neither are my mother and father. I'm the boss of me. God says, you shall not lie. You shall not steal. You shall not slander other people. You shall not covet what other people have. And what do we say? You're not the boss of me. I'll lie when I need to cover my butt. It's not really stealing if, if nobody finds out about it. 
And I'll say terrible things about people if they deserve it. And I'll wish that, that I had what they have if I know that I deserve it way more than they do. You're not the boss of me. That is the, the natural default response to the king. That's the reason why, well, honestly, why the Bible insists here in Psalm 2 and plenty of other places that it's not just that we don't believe in God or, or, or obey God, we hate him. We hate him. And now I can guess by the looks on some of your faces that some of you are thinking, come on, Jay. Pump your brakes, kid. It's, it's a little much, don't you think? I mean, that's just fancy preacher talk. I mean, sure, there are people who don't obey God like they should, but I don't think most people hate him. It's not like, it's not like we're hostile toward him. Oh, Really? We're not? Well, let me ask you this. The last time God showed up on earth, what happened? How did we treat him? What did we do to him? Hmm? What did we as a human race do to God when he appeared on earth? We betrayed him and had him arrested on false charges. We, we beat him senseless. We whipped him and scourged him until his back was torn to ribbons. We nailed him to a cross. We mocked and cursed him up there. What did we do? We essentially tortured God to death. Why? Because in our heart of hearts, we say, you're not the boss of me. We have a king. And we hate him. But here's the thing, and here's the last thing we're going to talk about today, is, is that we need the king. We need the king. I mean, look at the end of our psalm, if you have your Bibles there, verses 10 through 12. I mean, they pretty much say, look, you need the king. You need to serve him. You need to, to, to kiss him, rejoice in him, be blessed by him. These verses tell us that, that there's really no in-between here. There's no straddling the fence that, that you can either serve and rejoice and kiss the king and, and take refuge in him and, and be blessed, or... Or you won't serve, you won't rejoice, you won't kiss the king, you'll try to throw off his yoke, and like it says at the end of verse 12, it'll lead to your destruction. Now that's, uh, I mean, yeah, that, that's a very bold statement. Seriously. Uh, one of my very favorite Old Testament scholars, uh, Derek Kidman, puts it like this. He says... There's no refuge from the king. There's only refuge in the king. There's no refuge from the king. There's only refuge in the king. No in between. You have a king. You hate the king. You can't escape the king. 
There's no refuge from the king. But there is refuge in the king. We need the king, which means that we need the king's yoke. Because when we submit to this, when we take on the king's yoke, that there's something strange and wonderful that happens. In some mysterious and powerful way, the king's yoke eventually becomes a refuge. The, the confinement of the king's yoke eventually becomes spaciousness. Service eventually becomes freedom. That if you throw off or refuse the king's yoke because you think it's chains and shackles and slavery, it'll eventually destroy you. You need the king's yoke. The king's yoke is the only way to find true refuge, true peace, true rest, true blessing, true life. Think of it like this. All right, so I, I went to college at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and I started out uh, my freshman year as a music major. And one of the other freshmen who started in the music program the, the same time I did was Jeremy Milosevic. I played trombone, Jeremy played trumpet. And like most music majors, we, we both wanted to be great musicians. So one of us put on the yoke to be a great musician. And one of us didn't put on that yoke. Spoiler alert, it wasn't me. Uh, that's why I'm standing up here telling you the story right now. So what do I mean by that, though? What do I mean by that Jeremy put on the yoke? Jeremy yoked himself to a life of practice. He yoked himself to the practice rooms every day. He, he'd practice during the, day, during the week and on weekends. He, he'd practice. He'd get there before classes started. He'd practice between his classes, and he'd practice after class. He'd practice after everyone else went home. He'd practice until late at night. He was actually there in the, in the practice room late at night so often that he got to know the night custodians there so well that they secretly gave him his own key to the fine arts building. So while I was, you know, goofing around with my friends or hanging out with my girlfriend or, or playing video games or watching football or going to movies or, or whatever, Jeremy was putting on the yoke. He yoked himself to, 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 to a strict and intense practice regimen, scales, arpeggios, uh, Arben's conservatory method for trumpet and breathing exercises and playing long tones to improve his intonation and his phrasing. And he worked on his low range. He worked on his high range. He, 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 he worked on double and triple tonguing. He, he worked on all this stuff and, and, and way more. And he did it over and over and over and over and over again. And then he did it some more. Jeremy put on the yoke. Some days he felt like practicing. Other days he didn't. It was the same was true for me. Some days I felt like it, some days I didn't. And when I didn't feel like it, guess what? I didn't do it. But Jeremy did. He practiced anyway because every day he was yoked. And 
And over time, you know what happened? You know what happened. Jeremy turned into a monster on that trumpet. An absolute monster. That's a good thing, by the way. Jeremy excelled in a way that he never would have if he hadn't gone through all the work and the routine and, and let's face it, the drudgery of practice because he put on the yoke. And in a strange and wonderful, mysterious way, Jeremy's yoke, this yoke that he put on, became a refuge, an incredible blessing. How so? Well, the yoke became a blessing when, uh, when Jeremy became the lead trumpet in the Glenn Miller Orchestra. The yoke became a blessing when Jeremy got a gig playing on Amy Grant's Music of the Spirit album. The yoke became a blessing when Jeremy got gigs on Broadway shows like Newsies and Cabaret and Something Rotten and Hello Dolly and Tootsie and played with people like uh, Bette Midler and Bernadette Peters and all sorts of other names you would recognize. And actually right now, right now, Jeremy is playing in The Music Man with Hugh Jackman and uh, Sutton Foster. Oh, and he, uh, he also plays in the Radio City Christmas shows with the Rockettes every year. The yoke became a refuge and a blessing. So look, I, I still have my horn, okay? I still play. So technically, uh, both Jeremy and I are musicians, right? It's true, but, but only technically. I mean, I mean I'm, not, I'm not anywhere near Jeremy's zip code. He's, a, he, he's in a whole different stratosphere. And you know the difference between us? You know what the difference is between a musician like me and a musician like Jeremy? Jeremy put on the yoke, and I didn't. And now, look at him. Look at me. I mean, musically, we are worlds apart. Now, uh, you know, just to be clear... I'm trying to use this as an illustration, and I'm, and I'm not saying that he's a better person or more important or more worthy or worthwhile or whatever, anything like that. I'm just trying to show you what it is that a yoke can open up for you. How, how, how taking on a yoke feels like such strict confinement that over time turns into the greatest kind of freedom and refuge and blessing I mean, at the time, looking back in our college years, the yoke made it look like Jeremy didn't have a life. But oh, what a life it turned into. That yoke opened up Jeremy's life into the kind of life that, that you know, as a college freshman at UWEC, the kind of life that he would only have dreamed of. So, uh, you see how this idea works? The, 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 the Bible says that basically that when you believe and obey and, and love and follow Jesus the King, when you, when you take refuge in the King, when you take on the King's yoke, it means that you're no longer in charge of your life. You're yoked. That's the way it is. And it 
feels like confinement. But you know what? Submitting to the yoke of the king's will and the king's ways, though it may seem and feel like confinement, somewhere along the way your life opens up into into a kind of freedom and spaciousness where where you start to, among other things, experience the kind of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control that you could only dream of. The kind of life that can only be lived as you receive the yoke of Jesus the King. Taking the King's yoke is the only way to find true refuge, true peace, true blessing, and yes, true life. Again, like it says at the end of our psalm, therefore, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear, and celebrate his rule with trembling, kiss the sun, or your way will lead to your destruction. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Or like C.S. Lewis famously said, look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him And with him, everything else thrown in. Some people look at Jesus' followers and they think, man, they need to get a life. But oh, what a life it is. Taking the king's yoke is the only way to find true refuge, true peace, true rest, true blessing, true life. Because when it comes to taking the king's yoke, don't forget that Jesus is not just a king. He's a king on a cross. See, if if Jesus was just a king, uh, I mean, you'd still have to submit to him, right? Because, I mean, he's the king of all kings. You'd have to submit to him. But since he's not just a king, but a king who went to the cross for you, well, now you get to submit to his yoke. Now you want to submit to his yoke. Remember, there's no refuge from the king, but there is refuge in the king. And why wouldn't you want to? He's a king who went to a cross for you. He's not like a king who just plants himself on a throne. He's a king on a cross. A king on a cross for you. So now you want to submit to his yoke. Now you want to say, Lord Jesus, my king, whatever you do, I want to do. Whatever you say, I want to say. Whatever you send into my life, I want to accept. Because, Lord Jesus, when you were in the Garden of Gethsemane, you, you didn't tell the Father, you're not the boss of me. No, instead, you said, not my will, but your will be done. And you said that for me. 
So now, I want to say it for you. Now, I want to say, not my will, King Jesus, but your will be done. I want to put on your yoke. I want you to be in complete and full control of my life. King Jesus, you are the boss of me, and that's exactly what I want. Not to put it too bluntly, but this is the only thing that makes any sense whatsoever. I mean, seriously, how, how can you come to grips with someone who, who gave himself completely and utterly for you without giving yourself completely and utterly for him? Look, this is the only sensible way to respond to the king who went to the cross for you. It's the only reasonable response or if I can put it even more boldly, that when you consider who Jesus Christ is and everything that Jesus Christ has done for you, if you're in your right mind, you want to take on his yoke. Anyone in their right mind is gonna gratefully and cheerfully put on the king's yoke and say, I serve at the pleasure of the king. I want to take on the king's yoke. That's what anyone in their right mind is going to say. So, are you? Are you in your right mind? Do you? Do you want to take on his yoke? Blessed are those who take on the yoke and find refuge in the king. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for helping us to see the reality of who your son is, the Christ, the Messiah, the king. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to respond to him by pledging our allegiance to Jesus and taking on his yoke and serving at his pleasure. Shape us with, with these things as we respond to your word and, and as we continue to seek the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. For we pray all of this in the name of the one true king. Amen. Hey, I'm Pastor Doug. I just want to take a minute and to say thank you for downloading or streaming this content today. We at Triumph pray that it will transform your heart and draw you closer to Jesus Christ. I have three quick thoughts that I just want to share with you and it'll, it'll only take a minute. First, we'd love to connect with you. If you'd be willing, visit our website at triumphlvc.org connect and let us know how we can reach out to you. Or you can visit triumphlbc.org slash events to find an activity that you could jump into. Second, we hope that you see this content as supplementary in your walk with Jesus. Our, our digital content isn't really designed to be a replacement for belonging and engaging with a gospel community, whether that's here at Triumph or another church. And third, we invest a lot into producing this content and it's used to bless people like you and others all over our community. 
If this or really any of our other resources that you find online have been a blessing to you, would you consider giving? It's because of your generosity that we're able to continue creating and serving online. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless you.